Well, welcome to The Journey. Um, my name is Kevin Polk, and I'm the host of The Journey. And today, we have a very special guest. Um, we have Shannon Kruger um, to joining us today. As we are about to kick off the couple weeks prior to September, which is Suicide Awareness Month, um, we are going to start having uh, featured uh, conversations about individuals who've either been impacted by suicide or are involved and or involved with um, how to make a difference with either a particular demographic they're working with or um, uh, something that has been placed on their heart because of their own journey. So, uh, Shannon, I know we got an opportunity to meet a few months ago when I was doing or when we were doing a talk in Oak Creek, uh, Wisconsin, uh, a little bit south of town south of Milwaukee. And um, you had a very interesting story and a very engaging uh, personality. So uh, thank you for being on the journey. So uh, so let me uh, let me first start off with just asking. Uh, when you're not busy uh, working and advocating uh, uh, for, with all the different passionate things that you're involved with, which we'll get into in a little bit, what does Shannon do for fun? Uh, Shannon spends time with her dog. Okay. Uh, I have, yeah, I have a, a, a rescue dog, a puppy that I've had. I brought him home at eight weeks old. His name is Atticus. Uh, I live very near a park and we spend a lot of time hiking, um, traversing the river, uh, just being outside with my dog um, and a lot of a lot of yard work, a lot of outdoor time in my garden. Absolutely. OK. okay. And and are your uh, well, let's first stick with Atticus. Atticus is is a rescue dog. Does he do, does he feature any particular breed or is he kind of a mix? He's a super mutt. So he looks like he looks very wolf-like. Um, his okay. his breed is primarily Chow Chow. He's got German Shepherd. He's got Lab. He's got Chinese Sharpay. He has Transylvanian Bloodhound. He has a German Shorthair Pointer. Um, so he he's a, he's a handsome boy and he knows it. Um, but <laughs> yeah, he he people call him my little dire wolf. Uh, he's big too. He's an he's an eighty pound tank and he's. But he's great. He's the sweetest boy. Gotcha. Well, one of my very first dogs that I got after I finished college, <clears throat> undergraduate school, was uh, at about seven, seven, eight weeks old. I got a rescue from the pound, and it was a mix between a Chow Chow and a German Shepherd. And so only about 50 pounds. It was a female. But she was an amazing dog. Would go... Uh, I, Never had to have her on a leash. I would, depending on where I was at, but never needed to have her on a leash. She'd always be right by me, and I could just snap my fingers, and she would, she would, she would know what to do. You know, so yeah, that's we're finally getting there with Atticus. Um, so he he he's going to be a service animal for me. Um, nice. And yes, we've we've started some preliminary training when he was a puppy. Um, it was just too demanding at the time um, with what I had going on in my own life because I was still serving active duty in the military um, and had some other things that I was dealing with. So it was kind of hard to train him as a puppy. But um, there is a uh, a woman that runs an organization here in Wisconsin called Haven, and I am going to work with her to get him back into training so that way I can have him with me wherever I go because I would be lost without my dog absolutely <laughs> and how old is Atticus right now he's two and a half okay gotcha yeah. okay yeah. yeah and he was full puppy until he was about two um <laughs> I was like oh my goodness what am I going to do with this dog but then he just turned into a, such a gentleman um yeah nice nice my sidekick Perfect. So Shannon, uh, so tell us a little bit about your backstory. Where'd you grow up? Who were some of the players in your family or or your or your um, your circle? 
Okay. So uh, I was born here in Milwaukee, uh, but left as a toddler. Um, my mom and I moved to California um, as a kid, uh, lived in Southern California and spent some time in Las Vegas. Um, my mom was a single mom. Um, and my dad remained here in Wisconsin. I didn't really, um, for so many reasons, I just, I didn't, I wasn't afforded a relationship with my dad as a child. Um, when I was 13, uh, it was decided that I would come and actually live with my dad and my stepmom who had relocated from Milwaukee up to a very small town in the center of the state of Wisconsin, go ARPIN, um, A-R-P-I-N, that's correct. Uh, and so I moved from Southern Orange County, California to uh, Wood County, Wisconsin at the age of 13 to live with my dad, my stepmom. Uh, when I was 17, I joined the Wisconsin Army National Guard. I went to basic training uh, between my junior and my senior year of high school, completing basic training uh, just a couple of weeks before September 11th, 2001. Mm. Um, so when that happened, September 11th, 2001 changed everybody's life. Um, mine specifically, I, you know, I had joined for some type of purpose direction, um, but it became a very different mission, a very personal mission. Um, as I sat there having had just completed, you know, U.S. Army basic training, and then I'm watching the attack on my country um, and its citizens, uh, and it just, it changed the, the, it changed the forecast of my life. What um and maybe maybe you were alluding to it just a second ago. What why why the National Guard? Why why the military? I mean, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different choices. That's a great choice, but but why that choice? And because sometimes I don't think people fully fully grasp why someone at at 16, 17 years old would make that major commitment. Um, I had. I had an upbringing that made me aware of the fact that I was kind of on my own. Um, I uh, I was going to be the one that had to kind of set myself up for success. Um, college was the norm for everybody. It just wasn't something that I we had really planned on or for. Um, there had been no preparation or expectation that I would go to college. Uh, kind of wayward and, you know, ran into the recruiter and... Um, he he said the right things. Uh, you know the 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 college money seemed great. Um, the, it's the benefit of belonging. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't grow up in a in a household with a a, a nuclear family uh, type of dynamic, so really wanted to belong to something and wanted to to do something bigger um, than people had expected of me, mm -hmm. and and that was a a viable option. Okay, okay, and so. So basic training happens. You graduated from high school. What year? 2002, May of 2002. Okay. So, so you have to, if I'm, if I'm tracking with you, you have to, you get basic training done, 9-11 happens. And then you basically for six months, nine months have to sit and kind of wait to do anything. What, yes. what was that like? Challenging. Um, at the time, my stepbrother, so I, my stepmom um, has two children and my stepbrother, Andy, was serving. Um, so he had wrapped up his active duty commitment. He was serving uh, back here in the States um, or excuse me, in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so, you know, when we invaded Afghanistan that October, um, you know, and our nation was at war, 
I still wasn't a fully developed adult. So I wanted to be a part of it, but also knowing that I, I had not completed training yet. I had a um, my AIT or my, my job, my military job. I still had that training to complete yet. Um, so you know that it's, you know that it's happening. Uh, I also know that it was, that wasn't my fight yet. That wasn't my time. Um, that wasn't my battle quite yet. Um, that changed very quickly. I graduated high school in May of 2002. I went to uh, AIT in September of 2002, graduated in December of 2002, just the week before Christmas. And by uh, the third week of January, my unit that I was assigned to in the Wisconsin Army National Guard was called up for mobilization. So at 18, um, before I even got a chance to put that college money to good use, I was on my first deployment, mobilization. Wow. Okay. And where and where were you deployed to or where were you mobilized to? So we are... Our, our mission changed. This was right around the time it was just it was pre-invasion for Iraq. Uh, so our mission changed. Uh, the country we were supposed to go to uh, pulled out of support. And therefore, we got stuck right at Fort McCoy in Wisconsin. Um, we ended up becoming a deployment uh, a resource, so a mobilization site resource. Mm -hmm. So I it was in a maintenance unit at the time, and we could fix anything from, you know, a Humvee to a set of night vision goggles, uh, generators, you name it. So our job became, our mission became to support um, as, as units were leaving, and it was rapid mobilization. Fort McCoy was a rapid mob site. There were units coming in and out um, in ways that were unprecedented for the times. So uh, came I came on to that deployment in January of 03, and I stayed on until uh, June, June of 04, so almost 18 months. Mm, wow. um, yeah, which was which was hard because you want to be in the fight. You know you're in the fight, right? So not everybody's a trigger puller. Not everybody has no not everybody can be in those theaters of operation. Not everybody can be in Iraq or Afghanistan. We have to have support throughout, you know, the the globe. Um so for us, we're a maintenance unit and we're our armory, our headquarters was just outside of the gate. Um we were like, I don't even think nine miles away from Fort McCoy's main gate was where our armory was. So we have a bunch of soldiers sitting there unable to leave participating in the war effort can't go home can't go back to their families um but they're in they're 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 at home mm -hmm. they're in wisconsin so uh there was a lot of angst uh a lot of you know that was it was it was a hard deployment in the sense that it was frustrating mm -hmm. um because you don't feel like you're doing your part but you know you're doing something right. and you're sacrificing so it was it was uh it was a weird deployment and I would, I think that's a great, a, a great point to make because, and at 18, 19, 20 years old, we're going to have a hard time being mature enough to see it from a macro level. Um, you know, we, we get from some friends of mine that are recruiters as, as a salesperson, right. They, uh, they, they talk about what they do to, uh, you know, to encourage and, and invite people into, uh, into this way of life. And then if you have to feel like you're not able to do that, um, that, that's gotta, that's gotta be hard. But with that being said, what you guys were doing was critical for them to be successful for the ones that were um, uh, deployed overseas. Absolutely. It, 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 
being a part of the war effort doesn't, um, it doesn't come strictly from service, you know, being being in the uh, combat area. Um, we know how many people did it during World War II because those were, you know, total wars. So everybody had a hand in. Um, and when you're in the military, you want to be that hard charger. You want to be making the difference. You want to be, you know, full go mm -hmm. all the time. Um and it can it, it can kind of break you down mentally when you can't, um, you know, you, you, you want to participate, yet something is keeping you back. Um, a lot of cognitive dissonance there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that so so Shannon, that was 20, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. And so now thinking back, right, that was how your experience in the military began and the, and the National Guard and the Army began. Tell us a little bit about where you're at now and, and what are some of the other experiences that are kind of like highlight over, you know, highlight over your career. So I just retired last year. Um, pardon me. I don't know how to turn that off. Um I just retired last year from the National Guard. I did a, an act, a sec, I almost said actual, I did a, a second deployment, uh, this time to Iraq in 2006, 2007 with a transportation company. Um, when I came back from that deployment, I attempted to go to college again, just could not find fulfillment. Uh, didn't feed my soul, wasn't passionate about it. I applied for a job working full-time um, at the Department of Military Affairs in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, got hired for the job. <clears throat> That was September of 2008, and I worked full-time until last January. January of 2022 was when I finally separated, retired from service, uh, 16 years active duty, just shy of 21 years total. Um, I had a really great military career for the first 15 years. Um, yeah, and then things got challenging, um, you know, uh, both external life processes and uh, military culture. Um, and I started to face a lot of adversity in, in the last quarter of my of my time in. Um, so I separated last year uh, with, a, with a medical retirement. Um, and now I work, I work with veterans. I, I work as an outreach uh, peer specialist uh, for the Captain John D. Mason Veteran Peer Outreach Program. Uh, out of the Medical College of Wisconsin, um, got the job in April, and I'm still learning, uh, very much still learning uh, how to make this position my own. Um, I know how to connect with veterans. You can't tell me differently. Um, so I want to I wanna do it right, um, but I want to do it the way that I know best, because I think in order to connect with veterans and to really make a difference, especially when it comes down to life or death stuff, you have to be genuine. And if you're, you're not genuine, you're not passionate about it. If your heart isn't in it, person in need is going to pick up on that. So in my new role, um, I'm still trying to find my way. Uh, I, I think I'm getting a, a little bit more successful at it, but there is such a need. There's such a need for veteran peer support. There is such a need for uh, programs uh, like the ones that I'm involved in. Um, for our veterans, uh, younger veterans, our Vietnam veterans, you know, your Gulf War veterans, Cold War era veterans. Uh, there's there's new language that's being used um, and, and a new norm that's being set, like a cultural shift is happening um, everywhere across the globe, but also 
in the military. Um, and I just want to do my part, you know, to, to, to bring as many veterans with me to the promised land, to the finish line as possible. So tell us a little bit about, uh, Captain John D. Uh, Mason, uh, tell us a little bit about him. Tell us a little bit about what your program does. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about all that. So, um, Captain Mason, John, he was a Vietnam veteran who uh, we lost to suicide. And when uh, he when he did suicide, he left a note uh, to his best friend that said, basically, like, it's too late for me, but get me to the VA um, so we can save someone else. Um, and his best friend took that to heart and took that 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 guidance from his departed friend and and turned it into the Captain John D Mason Veteran Peer Outreach Program. So we work uh we work with a lot of organizations. Um so the the word veteran uh and outreach you're going to hear a lot in this podcast. Um but we so I don't work for the VA. I don't work at the VA um and you don't have to be affiliated with the VA for me to be a veteran peer to you. What we want to do, what the the big push behind this is suicide prevention. Um 70% of veterans that suicide have no connection or affiliation to the VA. Um for whatever reason that is, um, we know that getting them to the VA and, and getting them to surround themselves with other veterans and the programs and the people that are there to help keeps them connected. So we want to encourage people to, to give the VA a try again. Uh, we also were suicide prevention. So military veterans have a tendency to use um, weapon uh guns uh, when they suicide uh, more than the general population um, and that it's catastrophic. Uh, so we are, we also, the Captain John D. Mason program, um, we worked with the Live Today, Put It Away uh, program, which is gun retailers um, and local law enforcement agencies that will that they'll they'll do safekeeping of a weapon if a veteran voluntarily chooses to part ways with their weapon. If a veteran says, I'm in a point of crisis or distress and having that weapon in my home is unsafe for me, um, it allows that veteran to say, hey, can you hold this for me for 30, 60, 90, 120 days? You're not required to get a psych check to get it back. You're not required to go to your doctor and get a note. Um, it's just basically for you to take that knee, take those lethal means out of your uh, presence and give yourself a little bit of time to, to calm down um, or, or just or work through what you're going through or just get on the other side of it. I mean, if you have a divorce hearing coming up or you have a custody dispute or whatever it is, whatever, whatever the case may be, that's got that veteran in that distressed place. Um, if we can take a beat, get that lethal means, uh, even just put on pause. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. have a chance to come back. Yeah. Sure. So, and I know that's such a huge thing because I work a lot with first responders as well. And, and it seems to be, uh, active or, or especially veteran military active or retired first responders, um, one trusting is a huge issue it, 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 in my circumstances when I've worked with them and, and then 
being able to ask for help, trusting that I'm not going to have consequences as a result of that, especially if we're talking in Wisconsin and Northern Illinois, um, hunting is, is a big part of the culture. And I may not make, take measures to, for my safety, if it jeopardizes my way of life. Nailed it. That's exactly. And that's exactly what it is. That's the stigma. Um, uh, hunting, um, being a huge, just part of everyday life, family, it's tradition, it's gathering, it's holidays, it's, it's things like that. Um, there's, and there's nothing wrong with, with, with that. We know that you, we know that hunters can be trusted with their weapons and things like that. Similarly in the military, you don't want to be the person that has to, you know, I need to see mental health. Now they're going to take my weapon from me. Um, you know, when I was in Iraq, I had to hand over my weapon before I could go into the mental health facility um, or any better, any, any service member would have to turn, you know, relinquish their weapon in an, in the theater of operations where combat is happening, they would have to render themselves, uh, you know, defenseless in order to seek mental health help. And, and we want to get away from that. Um, we want to say like, Hey, we can, we can trust you to struggle. We can trust you to be a responsible gun owner. Um, and, and that's, it really is the cultural shift. It's, it's the change of the norms. Um, and I know, and I've discussed this with so many veterans, it's my right to have my weapon. You will take it out of my cold, dead hand. You will take it, but I can relinquish it to you because I know it's what's best for me. Um, and that's what, that's the precedent we want to set. That's the standard that we want to set. We don't want there to be a fear of consequences. Um, the life is a consequence, you know, but participating every day. Um, so we don't want that. We, we want, we just make it easier. So it's such an interesting thing. I've, I've been in the mental health field for 33 years now, coming up on 34. And in some capacity, either working in schools or addiction or mental health. And, and so many times, especially over the last 30 years, there has been fear has driven policy. Fear oh. has driven. Fear has driven some of this. Some of these black and white uh, uh, how we interact, and and so when that happens, it's 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 no, it's not much different than the failure we had, you know, 40, 50 years ago with the war on drugs. Just say no, and scaring people that if you smoke marijuana, you're going to go crazy um, or, it, you know, or your brain's going to be fried on drugs. Not saying that those things can't happen, but that is not the norm. And as soon as, as soon as we find out that you weren't telling me the truth, now I don't trust you with anything. Right. And, and that's, I know with, with even more, well, equally with first responders as well as veterans, um, uh, that has been a huge obstacle that we've had for 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 first responders to come in and seek help uh, with the, with the idea that um, how is this going to be held against me? One hundred percent. I know myself, my my experience in the military. The how is this going to be used against me? Held against me? That was a um, that was a real fear. It was when it was it, it was valid. Um, 
I experienced that in my career. Other veterans have experienced that. Uh, you know, you you don't want to be the person that raises the hand and says, "Hey, I'm I'm not doing well." Right? You want you don't want to be the the weak the weak link in the chain. You don't want to be the person that you know short sh shorthands your squad or your section or your mission. Um, you know, you you want a soldier on. I I use the word soldier a lot because army. Um, but you do, you, you want it, you just want to charge on. Um, and as soon as you say something, you know, how it's, how it's perceived, that worry, that fear of how it's going to be perceived keeps a lot of people struggling in silence. Um, and for a long time there, there was those consequences. There was that immediate admonishment of any service member that said, Hey, something's not quite right. Um, it was almost like, all right, well, now you're taking up too much time or you're being a drain. Um, same thing with first responders. Uh, we need firemen. We need police officers. We need uh, uh, paramedics. We have to have them. Society can't function without first responders. Uh, but what if they need to take a break? What if they're saying too much? Uh, it's not uncommon for first responders and veterans to overlap. Uh, I, I went to a, a training about a month ago where it was run by a lot of first responders and a lot of them were military veterans. Um, so it's the same culture. It's that same headspace. And I'm really grateful that uh, first responders are finally getting their seat at the table um, to talk about these things because they're seeing, they're seeing trauma and tragedy on a daily basis on the home front. Um, and you know, that kind of heroic, uh, presence keeps a lot of people silent yeah. Yeah, and it's not, it's yeah, it's not right anymore. It's the, yeah. times, times changed. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of parallels with what you were saying earlier about why someone becomes a fire, fire, firefighter or a police officer, very similar to the same, uh, the same piece of uh, what's what's draw someone in that that sense of wanting to make a difference, wanting to belong to something bigger than themselves, and I think equally that is why when you talk about pure support, identity yeah. is very much if you become if 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 you become uh, it, there must be some element of it where at some point when you're in the military, at some point when you're either in as a firefighter or police where you you are now inducted and now your identity is now forming around this and and then at some point when you transition out you're still you're you're still a marine you're still army you're still a police officer even though you may not be active absolutely well our initial entry training is an indoctrination right into military culture um we're a war fighting force so we are indoctrinated thoroughly, um, necessarily. It, it, it's out of necessity. Um, and then that becomes your norm. And that indoctrination is very hard to peel back um, because so much of what we do is, is uh, associated with pride, strength, courage, bravery. You start peeling that back a little bit, especially during the transition time and... I, I'll speak for me, but I, I I know I've been told this by other veterans. As you start to peel back that indoctrination, you feel like you're failing. Mm -hmm. How can I be, you know, how can I be able to do what I did in Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, wherever it is that I've been deployed, where, whatever, um, you know, enemy I've engaged in, how can I be able to do that 
but I have anxiety about getting my garbage and my recycling out to the curb by the end of the day. Cause if I don't do it today, cause I'm having a bad day, I'm going to miss it, you know? And then why do I feel like I'm failing at them? And that indoctrination leaves you feeling like a failure, even though what you're do what you're experiencing is very real and it's quite normal. Um, we haven't had the right language for that. We haven't had the right environment for that. Uh, which is why obviously, uh, your podcast and, and, and the event that we were at uh, in Oak Creek where we met, it's so important. Um, cause nobody wants to feel like a failure and that, that overwhelming feeling of, of, of disappointing or failing to meet the standard, uh, we will we'll lose you, we lose people to it every day, every day. So I know Shannon, um, you also, besides, besides what you've experienced in the military, you've also experienced in your personal life and your family life, uh, mental health, um, the impact of mental health. And um, I think it, it's, it's probably important to maybe talk a little bit about that because that was, that's part of the story too. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So um, I, my mom, my mom was um, undiagnosed uh, with a mental health condition for most of my adult life. Um, and in 2016, I lost my mom to suicide. Uh, my mom took her own life. Uh, I got the phone call on April 14th uh, from the detectives in, in California that uh, had found her. Um, my mom's mental illness tortured her uh, while she was uh, in this life. Um, I knew from a very young age, I knew it at about four years old, that my mom was different than other moms. Um, I knew that at about eight years old, I couldn't talk about how different my mom was. That was something that happened in our house and we didn't really discuss it. Um, I knew that my mom's wants and emotional needs were a priority over mine at a very young age. Um, I... I still, I'm in therapy on a regular basis uh, to work through the issues that I have with my mom. Um, with that being said, my mom, my mom loved me as much as she had the capacity to. Mm -hmm. uh, she had experienced trauma in her childhood that was buried under, never acknowledged, never addressed. It was different times, different, you know, it's just the way of the world back then. Um, and by the time my mother uh, had started to even attempt to conceive me and, and start her family with my father, um, was the same year that her diagnosis was actually first recognized. Um, so my mother was had borderline personality disorder. Um, she also had bipolar disorder, uh, psychotic depression, um, manic depression. Um, my, my mom's my mom's struggle was very real and for a very long time. And, and I know that she tried, I know that she tried, but the supports just weren't there. And, you know, here she was, uh, not even a name to her condition. And she was trying to, you know, emulate what she saw. You fall in love, you get married, you have a kid, um, having absolutely none of the foundation, the pillars that she would need to be successful in those roles because her mental health didn't allow her to, mm -hmm. um, I always 
preface this. I don't ever want to give anybody an opportunity to discount my mom. Um, but I have to acknowledge the reality is that she was very abusive. My, my childhood was very abusive. Um, but my mom did the best that she could with what she had. And I think that me being her life beyond herself keeps me even in my darkest days, um, moving forward. Um, she didn't have a chance. My mom, my mom didn't get a chance. I have my mental health diagnosis. I have my complex post-traumatic stress, uh, disorder, dare you say, but, uh, diagnosis. And I, I have a chance. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. I don't like my reality. Uh, I, I'm growing more comfortable with it. Um, but I have a chance and, and I owe that to my mom. Um, uh, my mom, when, when she, when she suicided, I was working, uh, I was assigned at an additional duty appointment as an applied suicide intervention skills training instructor. So it's, uh, it's the assist program. It's a two day workshop. Um, and I was an instructor for that. And so I remember calling the program manager, uh, the morning that I got the phone call and, and just saying like, my mom's, my, my, my mom has suicided. Um, and it took a very long time, um, for me to be able to realize that was not my failure. Mm -hmm. Um, cause how am I out here trying to save lives and putting together life plans and, and, you know, recognizing signs and symptoms and, and, you know, uh, suicidal ideations, behaviors, and I couldn't even do it for my own mom. Through therapy, I realized that I wasn't able to do it for my own mom because I had to put boundaries in place that would keep me alive, um, that would keep me as healthy as possible as she still struggled with her illness. Um, but that took time. And when I first started doing the Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training, the ASSIST program, one of the things that they ask you to do is say, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of suicide? Specifically, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you considering suicide? Um, you can't say, are you thinking of harming yourself? You're not going to do something dumb, are you? It is the actual asking of the words. Um, and it takes time. You know, you'll see your participants and even your instructors catch their breath. Because once you ask that question, you better be prepared for the response. Mm -hmm. And it's a very hard question to ask. Uh, I don't know if I would have been able to ask my mom that night that she, that she took her own life because she wasn't in a place. Uh, she wasn't with us. Um, she wasn't here. Um, but I had heard it enough. I'd heard it enough to know um, that it was a consideration. Um, I get it. Yeah, I... When I start talking about her, I can, I can go for hours or I can shut down. So <laughs> just give me a second. Yeah, it's okay. Um, You're yeah. doing great. Ah, thank you. Um, because you know, Shin, I think I, you you mentioned something, and I think it's, I think it's worth. It takes a long time of self awareness and self discovery. Therapy, own personal growth, right to to be able to see the same person but two different faces of the same person knowing 
what you said about that your mom probably did the best that she could do with what she had at the same time you needed more than she could give and that can right. be the same person and you don't have to hate someone because they can't do more or be angry at someone them you can be angry about the situation but right. but i think i think that is the paradox of when we start becoming more self-aware about our own story and about our own journey, that it can be the same person. Absolutely. Two things can be true. So I can have my needs and, 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 and be seeking them from somebody who doesn't have the capacity. Um, I say this a lot. I just, but two things can in fact be true. Um, and, and it's not, it's not to demonize. We don't want to, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to ridicule. We don't want to, we just have to accept that a person's behavior is they're only meeting you to where they can. Um, and it can be really hurtful and it can be feelings that you have to process. It's not necessarily that they're doing something wrong. Um, but you're going to, you're going to feel the pain. You're going to either feel the disappointment, the sadness, um, the letdown, whatever it may be. Um, the anger, the frustration. I didn't have all of these tools and all of these concepts and things like that. Uh, when I was younger, I just had that like raw emotion. So, you know, now I, I look back and I see that my body was in a trauma response. Um, you know, fight, fright, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn that those were my, those were my personalities for the longest time. And I didn't realize it. Um, I didn't realize that I was having trauma responses because when we think trauma, we think war, Mm -hmm. we think, you know, improvised explosive devices and, and snipers. And, and it's like, no, we're, we're having trauma. We're having trauma a lot. We're having generational trauma a lot. Um, our first responders are experiencing trauma. Imagine if your job is to, um, you know, uh, investigate fatal car accidents. Mm-hmm. You know, you're getting treated like a hero, but you're taking that, you, you're taking what you're seeing home with you. Uh, two things can be true. Um, mm-hmm. You can have the stomach to do a really difficult thing, but still struggle with it suffer with it. Um, I loved my mom. I love my mom. I'm very grateful to be her daughter, but she did not set me up for success and emotional health. And, 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 uh, that's okay. I'm, I'm here on the journey with you talking about it. Um, so I'm trying to be the change. I'm trying to honor my mom as best that I can. Uh, and it's one, it, you know, I, I take it a day at a time, except for the days that I don't participate. And then I just try again. Sure. I am. You said something earlier about in the midst of raising Atticus from eight weeks old to somewhere a little over two years old, mm-hmm. uh, that he was uh, challenging. And and I imagine that there was days, moments in those days that uh, there might have been a little bit of frustration. And uh, that self-awareness that you have worked on, the stuff that you learned in your experiences in the military in therapy helped you not make, help you make different choices than if you would have just acted on that frustration. Absolutely. With Atticus, uh, there were 
there were days where I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to live with my condition, live with my, my traumas, um, and, and what I'm going through in real time, in real life at the time and give him what he deserves. So that way he isn't a naughty dog who, you know, um, my dog loves to chew on things, not anymore. Um, but I Googled, uh, how to tell if your puppy's a wolf when he was like 70, he'd been in my house for 72 hours. Cause it's like, it, it, it looked like I was fighting a dog. Cause he was just, he was mouthy, never biting to be aggressive. He never bit, but he just always with his teeth still to this day, we go to the dog park. He's the sweetest boy, but he looks mean. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to give this dog what he needs. And, and, and my feelings of failure are now making my complex PTSD, um, struggles even that much harder. Uh, if I fail at taking care of a dog, I literally, what am I doing with my life? Like, why can't I even get this right? Um, there's a, I still go back and I look at this. It was a, it was a social media post that I shared where I had cried uh, he was finally napping behind me and I was crying. Uh, I was going through the divorce at the same time that I, I, I brought Atticus home. Um, and I just said like, puppy training is hard. Living with CPST or CPTSD is hard. Going through a divorce is hard. Separating from the military is extremely challenging. I did not win today. I'm going to call it a day and try again tomorrow. And I just... You know, when you have a puppy, people think like, oh, puppy, puppy. No, he brought me almost to my knees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but now he keeps me alive. We, If I don't get him out for a hike, he gives me face. And I'm like, I know, I know. <laughs> he keeps me engaged because I stuck it out. Yeah. I stuck it out. Yeah. And I think being able to go through your experience with Atticus, right, is an opportunity for you to have a level of empathy that you wouldn't have been able to have for your mom, because there was tools that you had, there was experiences that you could draw from on those days where your mom didn't have those and she didn't have what she didn't have. Right. And so to your point, doesn't mean that it was okay for you as a small girl, mm -hmm. but today as an adult woman, you can, you can see that from a different lens. Absolutely. Um, my mom and I had a very strained relationship. Um, even at the time of her suicide, we had not been in contact for a couple of months. Um, there were times where she was really, well, her illness did not overwhelm her. Um, and she, you know, there are things about my mom that I'm still grateful for. Uh, she taught me about the glory that is an avocado. She taught me to shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye. Um, she's the reason why I love to read and write and why I'm so well articulated. There are things about my mom that her illness could not steal from both of us. And I hold on to those things. Um, the process, um, I've made a lot more peace with my mom now in her death than I think I would have had the opportunity to do while she was alive. Um, and I knew that almost instantly because when, uh, when I was getting ready to leave her apartment after, you know, everything had been cleaned up and um, the, the, that process was done, that ordeal was over. I remember closing the door and just being like, you're finally at peace now, mom. Like, 
I have to go on. Nothing can be unwritten. Um, nothing can be subtracted. Nothing can be changed. But my mom gets to be healthy now. My mom gets to live um, through me in a way where, you know, I get to be the best. I get to be the best and the worst of the both of us, but with the best of us shining a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's therapy. It's it's constant. It's I'm not healed. I'm not resolved. I'm not fixed. I still definitely have moments where um, the reality of being Christina's daughter is heavy for me and I get sad. Um, I get, I don't say jealous, envious. Um, those moments are more fleeting now as I get the tools um, to handle all of these emotions that I've been dealing with since I was a little girl. Ooh. You're doing great, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Shannon, I know you've shared with me that not only was it your mom's death, but there was two other deaths that happened pretty quickly at the same time. Yeah. And and we talk about the idea of... Um, compounding trauma and in similar there's compounding grief and um and i think that sometimes people forget because we put first responders we put military and veterans on some type of pedestal some type of some some type of stand where we don't take in consideration that before they became uh before they entered the military they had most likely almost up to 20 years mm-hmm. of, of life experiences. And that life experiences is what they brought in to the military with them. And, Absolutely. And, and so you said something That's earlier that I, I think is critical for anyone listening to, to know is that being able to authentically create space so that you could then listen and ask questions of another veteran so that they know you may not know their story specifically until they, until they share it. Right. But you can empathetically create a space so that they can be seen and heard at that moment. Yes. I take, um, I, I don't like to do comparative suffering. I think that, I mean, in general, comparison is almost always the thief of joy, but my uh, my 2016 was excruciating. Um, shortly after my mom's suicide, uh, my best friend uh, who had been diagnosed with a, a stage four invasive ductal carcinoma um, in December of 2015, Megan. Uh, Megan died on July 2nd of 2016. Um, very young. She's been my best friend uh, since college. Megan's death rocked everyone. Um, she, strong, vibrant, beautiful, hardworking, hilarious, uh, married to the love of her life, um, had a beautiful life. And then all of a sudden within six months, this disease just ravaged her and she was gone. And it happened in front of us in real time. Megan passed on July 2nd. And then uh, just a couple weeks before that, um, my dad was diagnosed with uh, stage four uh, squamous cell carcinoma, And so I lost my dad on November 8th, um, 2016, uh, election day. Um, I, I was there with my dad. I held my dad in my arms, um, as he passed away, uh, in the living room of the home that I had lived with him and my stepmom in. 
So in the span of 208 days, I lost my mom to suicide. I watched my best friend get sick and die. And then my dad was gone. So I was orphaned. Um, and there was nobody that could relate to that because everybody around me was dealing with their own loss, um, struggling with, you know, their own individual loss. And then there I was like, I was like a, I was like a six legged, you know, four eyed weirdo. Like I just, I didn't make sense. I didn't fit in anywhere. I no, And, and who could I talk to who, cause I don't want to take anybody else's grief. And I don't want to say like, mine's more significant or mine's more traumatic or mine's more devastating or depleting, but I was drowning in grief. Um, wanting so much right to not lose myself, um, not wanting my, tr my reality to be true. Um, and also not just fully unprepared for the fact that it was going to change me in every single way. I, I was, I was in too much shock. Um, and I was, there was just far too much grief for me to understand that I would never be the same person after that experience, those experiences, um, that back to back to back, I was not, I had to relearn mm -hmm. so much because it was catastrophic and just devastating. And I think, you know, that, and that's why I wanted to bring up that, that we talk about in trauma work, we talk about accumulative trauma. And then when we get hit with multiple significant others in our life um, uh, re regarding grief, it, it kind of plays into that same element that it's, there's not, we don't fully get through or, or be able to even have time to work through cognitively and emotionally and physically the first loss. And then because, because in both those cases with your, with your best friend, Megan and, and, and your dad, it was the diagnosis that was also just as traumatic as the actual death from the diagnosis. Right. And so, so there's that element too, and that, that plays a part into it. I'm going to, I'm going to fast forward us just a little bit. Um, and, and with the idea of going back to what you do now, as as a peer support person, um, tell us a little bit about that. If you can kind of tell us in a, in a brief synopsis about what do you do with that and what's the best way, if someone was listening and wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way? One, what 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 is what's your role? And, and then what would be the best way for someone to reach out to you? So the best way to reach out to me um, would be to contact. So if you go to the Captain John D. Mason um web page. It's, it's veteranpeeroutreach.org, um, veteranpeeroutreach.org. That will lead you to, to my team, um, to all of our, our resources and assets, uh, email. I have a, a cell phone. I have a, a work cell phone specific for my work as a veteran peer support. Um, we have a, a social media presence. The Captain John D. Mason program um, has a, an Instagram page, um, and that will give you access to, to me, my email. It also will introduce you to the other uh, veteran peers that I work with, um, Mark and Pete. So, and not only that, but there's like, we work with Veterans Outreach of Wisconsin um, out of Racine, and very ve veteran uh, heavy veteran staff, um, also just civilian staff there. So there's, if, if you're looking to get a hold of Shannon Krieger, or you just have a, a search button on Google or Facebook, you'll be able to find me. 
Perfect. Okay, yeah. great. Well, Shannon, I know we talked earlier before we started today that I, I'm, I'm definitely interested in us having another time when you're on so we can continue exploring some of your story and what you're doing um, as you are now into the second part, uh, uh, as you're recreating yourself, um, you know, in, in, in this life as as post post military um or active duty so um so let's let, let's do this let's go ahead and we'll go ahead and wrap up for today and and then we'll set up another time period for us to be able to uh meet in the future and have the audience come back and listen to you tell a little bit more about some other aspects of of, of your story and what you're in the work that you're doing so I would, yeah I, I would love that Kim thank you so much for having me and, and to everybody that's watching um yeah, it's it's a long story. My it's certainly not over. Um, you know, I I'm having a good day today. I think that's what I would like to um, kind of part ways with uh, the the audience and you. I'm having a good day today. I was not having a good day this day last week. Um, I have dark days, and I just kind of have to grin and bear it through those until I can get re-energized by days like today, um, moments like this, connections like these, um, because I'm not, I'm by no means out of the woods. It is a constant process. It is constantly showing up, knowing that nothing is going to change. My history is not going to change. My memories aren't going to change. Um, so just thank you. And, and I, I, I look forward to coming back and talking with you and I'm grateful for the work that you're doing, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Perfect. So for anyone's listening, if uh, for some reason that something that Shannon may have uh, had, may have mentioned or something we t in our conversation talked about, if that spurs you, spurred you or inspired you or nudged you in some way, um, I would encourage you that that probably was not done by accident um, to, to act on that and to um, go and seek that help, seek that, uh, that resource that just as Shannon just mentioned, that um, dark days are part of our life, but dark days are not a sign that it's always going to be dark. It just happens to be right now. Um, there will be, uh, at some point, the sun will break through and the light will come in. So as always, I appreciate you being here and I look forward to being with you next week.